Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 17 through 20 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read beginning at verse 13 for the sake of context. So we'll read Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 20. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, "Who do men say that I am? Uh, the, the son of man am." So they said, "Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's ask for God's blessing now in the preaching of his word. Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand this passage, that we might grow in grace and in love for you. And particularly, Lord, we think about the foundational nature of this passage for the doctrine of the church. Lord, help us. We do pray to love your church, to love your church well, even as the scriptures teach us that we ought uh, that it might go well with us, that, that we might be blessed in the service of your name. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would humble our hearts, enable us to receive the word of God well, that we would be given eyes to see and ears to hear for the sake of the glory of your name. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, very often in terms of the, the progression of maturity in a Christian, there is something of a uh, generally predictable trajectory to theological development. Now, this doesn't have to be the case in this way. This is just something that, that I have observed, and I think other people have observed as well, uh, that there, is, there typically comes a point in a Christian's life where he or she recognizes that doctrine is important, and that's usually the, something that's a, a kind of a first step that, you know, the, the things that are taught in the scriptures, the particular questions that are asked, that those things are important. And oftentimes what happens is that, is that a Christian will then become very interested in reading the Bible and recognizing that, you know, these questions that are very practical for my life that I have to understand and build my life on, that it's actually only in the Bible that I can get to the answer to these questions. And so, uh, therefore, a Christian will begin to uh, study the scriptures more diligently. And very often in this context, then, one of the first questions that gets asked are typically those related to salvation. And here, very often, the question of Arminianism versus Calvinism will will come up. And uh, a person will then, uh, very often, will then become... Uh, convinced of the doctrines of grace, they will be in awe at the sovereign grace 
uh, of God. And this will be uh, humbling to, to the Christian. He will grow in his faith and in his love for uh, God. And then the next point that typically happens, as, as, as far as, as I can see and observe, is that uh, then Christians typically then start asking questions about the church. And it is this, this movement typically from salvation is the first questions that are asked. And then questions about the church come. Now, sadly, many Christians come this far and then stop. They will fail to see the importance of the church. They will become very convinced about the doctrines of salvation and the, and the doctrines of grace. And then, then there will be a, a failure to take the next step and to ask the question, um, how do these doctrines relate to the doctrine of the church? And what this has produced, I think, in uh, this generation generally, is a situation where there are a lot of people who have a strong understanding of the doctrines of grace and of salvation, and yet the doctrine of the church is ignored. And a Christian's commitment to the church is also then uh, not seen to be that important. It doesn't appear to be important. People can think very carefully about uh, certain doctrines and know them even very, very well, but then fail to connect those doctrines with the need to be in a church and to be a part of, of a church. However, the doctrine of the church is very important, and further, it is a glorious doctrine. Um, one of the, uh, the Presbyterian uh, theologians of the 19th century, Stuart Robinson, uh, wrote a book on the importance of the doctrine of the church, and he actually argued, this is in the, the title of the book, that the, the church of of God, the Church of Christ, is actually an essential element of the gospel. Now, he does not mean that a Christian cannot be a Christian if he doesn't get this right, but what he is arguing is that if you have a certain view of salvation, if you, are, if you have a view of salvation that highlights the sovereign grace of God, if you recognize that God sovereignly grants salvation to whomever he will, that there is actually a particular view of the church that of necessity must follow from that doctrine. That there is a, a connection between the way in which we see salvation and the way in which we see the church. And basically the, the first point that he makes with regard to this connection is that if you believe that God has elected the people from all eternity to be saved in Jesus Christ, then you must also recognize that God has not elected a mass of individuals, but rather a people. And that election, that group, that body, that Christ that has been elected in the Lord Jesus Christ from all eternity, that the scriptures actually call that group the church. The, the scriptures call that group that has been elected from all eternity the church. And this is what we would call the, the, the doctrine of the invisible church. However, um, you know, you may still, still say, well, there's, a, there's still a disconnect with the, the visible church itself, you know, what we do uh, coming together on, on, on every Sunday. However, um, what Stuart Robinson goes on to say is that if it is further the case that God has not only elected a particular people called the church for salvation, uh, he's also, in addition to that, he's also chosen the means by which that people will be called, perfected, and established in this life. And the means by which he will do that is the institution of the visible church. And the point he's making is simply that if you believe then that God has elected a group of people from, from eternity, then it is also necessary not to despise the means by which God has decreed from eternity that that group will be brought into faith. God has decreed 
not only that there would be salvation, but also that it would be through the means of the church that, that this group of people elected from all eternity will actually be brought to faith and built up in comfort and in holiness all the days of their life. The point then is, is that you cannot then despise the institutions that God has set up in his word without also despising, what, what is effect, in effect doing is despising the means that God has chosen in his eternal wisdom to bring about his eternal purpose of salvation. Uh, you may be surprised to, to uh, hear that actually in our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it actually teaches that outside of the visible church, now think about this, the, the visible church, this would be you know, the idea of like church membership, uh, outside of the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church. Now, this is not meant to be taken as an absolute statement. You know, this, the word ordinary is there for a reason. And yet, the purpose of that statement is to affirm that there is no way to dispense with the doctrine of the church or the church itself without great damage to your own spiritual condition. And even, and even, um, if you have a despising of it, if you despise the church, that is very good evidence that you are in fact not a Christian. Because as the church fathers have said, going all the way back to at least the third century, uh, you cannot have God as your father without also having the church as your mother. You cannot have God as your father without also having the church as your mother. Now, as we think about then this, the, the, the significance of, of the doctrine of the church, uh, the reason for this long introduction with regard to the significance of the doctrine is this text, this text that we are looking at this morning is one of the most foundational texts and passages for the doctrine of the church. It is here that we understand uh, what the church is in terms of, the, in particular, it's the nature of its authority, uh, what it does. We, we understand the basic uh, the, the basic nature of the church and its authority from this very passage. And this passage is part of, of Christ's response to Peter's confession. Uh, you remember we, we looked at last week the way in which uh, Peter's confession serves as a hinge for the entire gospel. Everything is driving towards this confession. And then once the confession is made, everything will then shift to a focus on the death of Christ. We've seen that, we saw that that was actually, the, that's actually going to be the major theme of the back half of the gospel is uh, Christ's death and his resurrection. However, um, another important thing to note about this second half of the gospel is that if the death and resurrection of Christ is the, the most significant and prominent theme, the second most significant theme is, in fact, the doctrine of the church. And I think there are several reasons for this. Uh, one, if, if Christ is going to be departing, as he's going to make clear with regard to his death and resurrection, uh, if that's the case, then the thing that Christ then must do is prepare his people for what will happen when, uh, when he's gone. Once he dies, is raised from the dead, then he will ascend into heaven. And at that point, he will not be bodily present on the earth. He will be present with his people through the church. And therefore, it is necessary for Christ to give instructions about the church. And so, therefore, he begins. And what I think significant is, is this foundational statement about the church for the entire New Testament in a lot of ways uh, is given immediately after this profession of faith that Peter makes. We'll see that Christ will come back to this um, e even in more detail in uh, chapter 18. 
And uh, we are then to, to recognize that this is, in fact, a significant thing. It is a significant thing that we are to understand about the Christian faith, uh, that, we are to be, uh, that, that we are to be members of a church and even to be uh, submissive to the church and even further to, to love the church. Uh, so we'll look at this passage, therefore, in light of that under two headings, uh, looking particularly at the way in which Christ responds to uh, Peter. First, we'll look at how Peter is the rock in verse 18. Peter is declared to be the rock or the foundation of the church. And then we'll see Peter as the recipient of the keys of the kingdom in verse uh, 19. Uh, so we are, we are told something about the nature of the church in verse 18. Then we are told um, something about the nature of the church's authority in verse 19. And what we learn from the text is that the church is built on the foundation and the teaching of the apostles and has great authority in the kingdom of God. Those are the, the two things that we learn from the church. It is built uh, about the church. It is built on the foundation of the, of the teaching of the apostles, and it has great authority uh, in the kingdom of God. Uh, now, verse 18, coming back to verse 18, Peter is declared to be the rock. This is immediately following uh, Christ saying that the profession of faith of, of uh, Peter did not come from himself. It rather uh, came as a sovereign gift from God, and therefore Peter is blessed. Uh, Peter then will say, uh, uh, sorry, Christ will, will, will then say that uh, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Uh, the word uh, Peter in the uh, original Greek is the word for rock. And so the idea here is that it's, it's, a, it's, a big, it's, it's a big rock is the idea. So it's a rock that can serve as a foundation. And Peter, therefore, uh, is, the, is the rock uh, as his name suggests. And that is because he is to be the foundation. Now, um, one of the first questions we need to ask with regard to this particular verse is who, who is actually the rock? Uh, who is the rock? Uh, the reason this is an important question is because you'll know probably that this is um, one of the favorite verses of Roman Catholics uh, to try to prove that they used to try to prove their claims with regard to the Pope. So what, what they will say is that, you know, Peter is the first Pope. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, clearly he is the rock. And therefore, he is the foundation of the entire church. And, you know, he uh, was the Pope from Rome, the very first one. And what they'll say is that we are the continuation of, of that authority. So uh, the, the, the basic, the, uh, basically the authority of the Pope, the first Pope was Peter. That was passed down to the next person that was in Rome and so on and so forth and all the way down to us. And therefore, then they will conclude that uh, anyone who is outside of that foundation, which would be outside of the Roman Catholic Church, that they are therefore... Uh, not Christians, and uh, certainly outside of the church as it is described in the scriptures. Now, what often will happen is uh, Protestants will sometimes be tempted to say that the rock is not Peter in order to avoid the Roman Catholic conclusions. So they'll say, you know, that uh, something like, you know, the rock is not actually Peter, but it's actually Peter's confession, something like that. Uh, or it's the apostles uh, together. There is a relationship to all the apostles, as we will see. However, um, as we, we think about this, uh, it is, there, there is really no need to fear the Roman Catholic conclusions and uh, to avoid the plain meaning of the text, which associates clearly the rock with Peter. There is simply no reason for us to be, to be afraid of this. And the reason why is because um, it does not follow that Peter being the rock in any way proves the thing that the Roman Catholics are trying to prove, namely the authority of the Pope. And the reason for this is because there are a number of assumptions 
with regard to uh, the, the way in which the Pope's authority work, uh, works, that even if you grant that Peter is the rock in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it's not, it's not that that we need to, to, to say is wrong. It's all of the assumptions that come from it. So, for instance, uh, just, just a few of these. So, uh, first, you have to assume that Peter is first among the apostles. That one is true. Uh, next, though, you have to argue that the succession from Peter determines the continuation of this authority. So, uh, that is not in the text at all. So, the idea here is that um, the Catholics are assuming that there will be a physical successor to Peter. That person basically now has the new authority of the rock of the church. Uh, and then, but then next, in addition to that, the succession has to be tied down to the place where Peter died. Uh, and so, so the idea here is that um, not only do you have to assume that there's going to be this succession, this physical succession from Peter, but also that the only place where that succession can take place is the place where Peter died, which is Rome, and therefore the Roman Catholic Church uh, is the foundation for the church. However, one can agree that the Peter is a rock and yet have serious questions and concerns about this uh, narrative with regard to uh, the assumptions that are made. First, uh, where is it in the text or anywhere else in Scripture that we are told that Peter's apostolic authority would be handed down by direct succession? In fact, the New Testament actually teaches the opposite. The New Testament teaches that there are, there's nobody that has succeeded the apostles, that they, there is something unique about the apostles and that that apostolic authority ended with them. It did not just continue, it actually ended with them. Um, so if someone has this unique authority with regard to being uh, the foundation for the church, um, that's granted, but, 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 but where, where is it taught in the scriptures that we are to look for the succession of that and so that we can say there is apostolic authority uh, in some other place that's continuing down to this day? Secondly, and probably even more problematic, would be the question of why it would be the case that Peter's death would lead to the location of that authority being fixed. Why, why should it be the place of his death at all? The idea here is that uh, the authority of, of the rock moves around with Peter to wherever he is, and then it gets fixed when he dies. But what in the scriptures would teach us that that's actually to be the case? Why not the place of his birth? Why not the place of most of his ministry? Why not Jerusalem, where he spent a lot of time and was with Jesus Christ? Why would it need to be Rome? All of this is just assumed in the text, and all these are, are great problems. And therefore, as we think about this particular text, uh, um, we, we simply um, do not need to fear saying that Peter is in fact the rock. He is the rock. The thing that is wrong with the Roman Catholic interpretation is not that Peter is the rock. It is all of the other assumptions that come after it. Peter is the rock. It, however, is not the, the, it, it is not continued by Im immediate succession tied to the place of his death. That, that, that is the thing that cannot be proved. Now, with regard to the Reformed understanding then, how, how are we to understand uh, this particular text? First, it's important to note that there is, in fact, a relationship between, uh, b between Peter and all of the apostles. So Peter clearly is the rock, and yet he is not the rock in exclusion from the other apostles. So in this view, Peter, along with all the apostles, are the true foundation for the church. Uh, Peter has a position of eminence by way of representation, insofar as he very regularly speaks for all the apostles, but he is not actually above them. That is actually very clear from Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Paul uh, actually corrects Peter in front of a number of, of people, and there is no sense in which Peter has an authority that is over Paul's uh, at all. And uh, further, we are taught by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that 
uh, that uh, we are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the rock is the foundation, as Christ says in Matthew 16. However, other places in the New Testament describe that foundation as being all of the apostles. And therefore, we are to recognize that Peter, as one of the apostles, and as their representative, so to speak, is rightfully called rock and is the foundation for uh, the church. We actually see this as well in Matthew chapter 18, where uh, the power of binding and loosing, which is given to Peter here in chapter 16, is actually given to all of the apostles, uh, therefore showing that they have uh, this authority, uh, this same authority as Peter. Now, one other thing that's significant with regard to the understanding of the church uh, for this, if Peter, how does Peter function as the foundation for the church? If it's not by this idea of immediate succession, uh, you know, handed down from one generation to the next and locked into a particular place, uh, how is it then that Peter functions and all the apostles function as the foundation for the church? And the answer is in their writings and teachings. What, what we are saying when we are saying that Peter is the foundation for the church and then by extension all the apostles is that the church is built on the foundation of apostolic teaching as it has been given in the New Testament. The church's foundational stance is to be the place where the writings of the apostles are received as absolutely authoritative for us. And therefore, what we would say is uh, basically that Matthew 16, far from actually proving the Roman Catholic doctrine, is actually proving a Reformation doctrine, which is the doctrine of sola scriptura. That, that we actually have Peter as our foundation when we listen to what he says, when we obey his writings, when we obey his teachings, when we recognize that what he has taught us is foundational for the entire church. That is the way in which we affirm the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We actually see this uh, further with regard to uh, the way in which Paul describes this foundation in Ephesians 2.20 already alluded to, where um, you know, Christ is describing this foundation as Peter, but then in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul describes this foundation as the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets. So notice it's not even only the apostles, but it's the apostles as they are related to the prophets. And this is significant because uh, the idea here is that these are, this is a twofold uh, term that basically is equivalent to the twofold canon that we receive. There is the Old Testament, which is the prophetic writings, and then there's the New Testament, which is the apostolic writings. And even we, we see this in the early church. The early church actually used these two terms to describe this twofold, uh, this twofold canon. Um, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the, uh, our, our, our forefathers, so to speak, would simply call the prophets and the apostles. And there, uh, if this is true, then the, 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 uh, what this is showing is that the main way in which we show that the apostles are the foundation for uh, the church is by receiving their writings and holding to them alone. If there is something in the church that is to be done, we are to ask the question, has an apostle written that we are to do that thing? And if the answer is no, then what we would say is doing that thing would put us outside of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Show us where it is apostolic, not where it is based on merely the, the tradition of the church or whatever else, Show us where it is apostolic, and if you can show us that it's apostolic, we will say it is part of the foundation of the church. We will build on it. We will build on that foundation. We are to look to uh, the writings of the apostles for the foundation for the church. And this is what, what Christ is teaching us about the nature of the church in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. 
We even see this um, as, insofar as uh, Peter and his words here, um, Peter being the foundation, uh, it is not the case that the rock is his confession, but also Peter cannot be abstracted from his confession. He has just professed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's in response to that that Christ declares him to be the foundation. So not only are we to understand it's the teachings of the apostles, but we're, we're to understand that the thing in which the apostles are teaching that is the foundation for the church can be summed up by his confession of faith. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is that apostolic faith that is the foundation for the church, and therefore the church must always hold firmly to the word of God without wavering. Now, you'll also recognize that the other thing that is said about the church in verse 18 is that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Uh, the gates of, 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 of Hades. Now, the word Hades is uh, the word for the grave uh, in the original. The, the, the point is that the forces of death over which Satan rules will not prevail against the church. When the church is built on the apostolic foundation of the word of God, following the word of God without recognizing any other authority than the, than the prophets and the apostles, through whom the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken, when the church stands on that foundation, she will always overcome the gates of hell, the gates of Hades itself. Now, um, sometimes it is pointed out, I think correctly, that uh, describing this victory as the gates of Hades not overcoming the church, uh, that, that the language of the gates of Hades implies that the gates of Hades are on the defensive, that the, the forces of darkness are actually on the defensive. The idea is that um, gates don't attack, they, they protect against an attack. If the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, what that means is when the, when the church is attacking the forces of death, the church will succeed and will overcome those gates and win the victory. The point is, is that the church must recognize that we are actually in this life to be on the offensive. And it is part of the nature of the church to win the victory. Because the, because the decisive victory has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has defeated death and Satan, and therefore we are to go recognizing that as the church moves forward, it will in fact conquer uh, those gates. And the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against the onslaught of the church. Now, the way in which the church fights is just the same as its foundation, which is through the word of God. It stands on the foundation, it fights with those spiritual weapons, and it expects that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, that there, that there will be an advancement to the kingdom of God, an advancement that we can see all throughout church history, uh, very often won through the blood of, of the saints, and yet won nonetheless. This is the nature of the church as Christ describes it in Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18. Um, now, the next thing that is said with regard to uh, the church is that uh, Peter, again, in his relationship to the apostles as a whole, is given the keys of the kingdom. It's given the keys of the kingdom. So verse 18 sets apart the apostles as the foundation for the church. Verse 19 describes their authority. What is the nature of the authority that the, that the, that the apostles have? And by implication, we'll see also what is the nature of the authority that the church has? What is the nature of church authority? Now, um, as we think about this particular text, uh, it may be helpful to contrast this with the symbol for uh, civil authority that is used in the scriptures. Here we have given 
the classic symbol for church power. It is described as keys. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That is the, that is the nature of the authority, uh, the symbol that describes the authority that the church has. The, the symbol that is used to describe the authority of the civil government is the sword, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 13. So the, the idea behind the civil government having the sword is this. The civil government has the authority to make laws, whereby, as Paul says in Romans 13, righteousness is rewarded and wickedness is condemned. That is the obligation of the civil government. And God has put into the hands of the civil government the sword in order to uh, enforce those laws with the use of force. The civil government has the authority to enforce laws, even with force, uh, that promote righteousness and that condemn wickedness. That is the purpose of uh, the authority of the civil government. Christ, on the other hand, gives keys to his church. He gives keys to the church. Now, uh, a sword can be used to enforce things physically. Keys cannot be used that way. Keys are used to open doors and to shut them. And that is the nature of the church's authority. Uh, the, the church does not punish with force and merely has the authority to teach the laws given to her by her king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The civil government makes its own laws that are consistent with the, the standards of righteousness that are seen in the scriptures. The church, however, does not have the authority to make its own laws. We, we do not have the authority to uh, make our own laws. We, are, we receive the testimony of the apostles and the prophets, and then we exercise the use of the keys to open doors and to close them. Now, what does it mean actually to open these doors and to close them? What, what does it mean actually to, to make use of these keys? Well, there's, there's something that is uh, uh, said immediately afterwards that gives us a, a clue as to what this means. We are told whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So does the church have the, the authority to enforce its own, its own laws with the use of force? The answer is no. But if you were to ask then, is there a significance to the authority of the church? The answer is yes. The church's authority is very significant because whatever the church binds on earth is bound in heaven and whatever the church looses on earth is loose in heaven. The idea is, is that Christ has given authority to the church to make pronouncements in accordance with the word of God and when those pronouncements are done according to the word of God, the idea is that, that those pronouncements are a reflection in heaven. They are actually reflected in heaven. And it is actually the way in which the means by which Christ opens the kingdom to, to some and closes it against others is through the authority of the church. This is why the church is, in fact, so important. This is something similar said in John chapter 20, verse 23. This may be helpful um, to understand uh, where the same things are said with regard to the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, so the idea is whatever sins you, you remit are remitted, whatever sins you, you retain are retained. The, the idea is that there is this authority to forgive sins, so it appears, that are given to the church. Uh, now, the Roman Catholic Church interprets this as saying that the, the church has in itself the authority to forgive sins. Uh, however, the scriptures plainly teach that no one can forgive sins except God alone. Um, so the question then is, what then is this power? The, the, the answer is that the church is given the power to render judgment concerning the forgiveness of sins in light of the word of God. And it makes a pronunciation when it's consistent with the word of God is in fact the pronunciation of heaven itself. And that is where the strength and the significance of, a church's, of the church's power uh, comes from. 
Therefore, the idea is that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is very much related to the judgment of the church. This is the reason why church membership is not optional, why you have to be a member of the church. Whatever the church binds on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever the church looses on earth is loose in heaven. Now, uh, you, you may be wondering, well, how, how do we know that this actually applies to the whole church? It seems like it could be applied just to the apostles. The answer is that the same language of binding and loosing is used in chapter 18, which we'll come to, uh, I'm sure, at some point. And in chapter 18, it is applied to the church in the context of church discipline which is something that the church must always do all throughout, its, uh, all throughout the history of the church. We must always exercise church discipline. The apostles are no longer with us. Therefore, if the church continues to have this authority to bind on earth and, and to loose on earth and it would be reflected in heaven, uh, um, if that still must be done, then the church has that authority still. And the authority then is wrapped up in the leaders of the church, which are uh, the elders. Uh, this is the reason why, too, the church's excommunication is so significant and why it cannot easily be brushed aside. If you are excommunicated from the church, what this means is that if that decision is consistent with the word of God, that Christ himself is declaring that you are outside of salvation. It's not just the private judgment of an individual. This, this is the institution that God has appointed, given authority by Christ himself to make this determination. And now, I'm not trying to say that the church gets it right all the time, but what I am saying is it cannot be easily brushed aside. Christ has given the authority, the keys of the kingdom, to the church. Whatever the church binds on earth is bound in, in, in heaven. Whatever the church looses on earth is loosed in heaven. This is the reason why it's so significant as you come in, in church membership that there is, uh, you know, there, there is a, a, a class that is done, then there is an interview with the session. The idea is that, that we, are, we are determining whether or not there should be a binding or a loosing. And, and the idea in terms of the significance is that that binding act of binding or loosing is in fact the action of Christ. It is the action of Christ as he has delegated it to those who he has given the authority uh, to make those kinds of declarations. Uh, that is the significance and the weight of church membership. Now, um, ho hopefully you can see with regard to this that the, the church is, is necessary, it is important, it is good for us, it's not something that should be overlooked, and, uh, you know, I, 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 and it's the reason why uh, it, is, it is in fact a necessity for every Christian to join the church, is it, it, you know, whether it be this one or not, every Christian must be a member of a local church. It is a necessity by way of the command of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even just applying this to uh, a little bit to our online ministry, um, you know, we're, we're very thankful for the online ministry. We're thankful that uh, the Word of God gets out to more people. Um, however, there is a danger with regard to uh, posting sermons online and to, uh, you know, having all of our services live online. And that is that um, people can, there can be a temptation to think that this replaces or is sufficient uh, with regard to church membership, that it can replace church membership or that it is sufficient and there's nothing, no other uh, thing that needs to happen. Our hope for the online ministry is that people would hear the gospel preached and that the end result would be that more people are members of Reformed churches as a result. Uh, that is the great desire. Basically, if we fail in that last step, we, we have failed uh, because uh, the kingdom of God advances in the context of the church. The church is the means by which God has ordained that the elect will be brought in. It is the means that God has ordained for the strengthening of his people. And he has given us 
the, the church uh, for our good and for that very purpose. And therefore, brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the church is important. Uh, another uh, reason to think the doctrine of, of the church is important is because uh, not only is it the case that Christ, uh, that God has elected the church from all eternity, but also uh, the scriptures describe, particularly in Ephesians 5, as the, the, the church as the bride for whom Christ died. The church is the bride for whom Christ died. Is it possible to love the Lord Jesus Christ and then to despise his bride for which he died? Is that possible? Is it, is it possible at all? Or is it rather the case that the best way to show that you love the Lord Jesus Christ is to honor the one that he loved enough to die for, namely his own bride. Uh, brothers and sisters, as we think about these things, uh, my prayer for you is that you would not despise the church, rather that you would say to her, as we will be singing in just a few moments, glorious things of thee. In that, in, that, in that hymn, it is speaking of the church. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. May it be that God would grant you the grace to grow in love for the bride, even as you grow in love for the bridegroom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you uh, for your word, which is the foundation for everything. And Lord, we do pray for your church. We ask that the church would always remain faithful to her Lord and her, her husband, that she would always remain faithful and stand on the words of the apostles and the prophets, that great foundation for her, that she would do so out of love for her Lord who has spoken by the prophets and the apostles, that she would be uh, quick to, to hear him, that she'd be quick to submit to him. Uh, Lord, we, we pray further that you would grant to all of us a, a recognition of the importance of the church, that we would see the truth of the statement that we cannot have you as our father without the church as our mother, that we cannot say we love the, the, the bridegroom and hate the bride, that we would uh, desire to uh, to be a part of her, to strengthen her, to, to build her up, and that for the sake of the glory of your name. Uh, Father, we do ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72 cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. 
there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.